Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. This week, we bring you a story about LSD. Undergraduate senior Erin Young dives into the history and neurochemistry of LSD. This episode comes from the very first class where I assigned this podcast project back in 2016. So here's episode five, a new look at LSD. Hi, my name is Erin Young and I'm a chemistry major at UNC Asheville. And today I'm gonna be talking about LSD and the recent breakthroughs that have occurred with regards to this drug. And I'm gonna be helped out by my friend, Matt. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm not a chemist, but I'm gonna try to help other non-chemists understand the topic we're discussing today. Lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD, is one of the most potent psychedelic agents with extraordinary psychotropic properties, altering perception, mood, and consciousness in profound and distinctive ways. So LSD makes you see and perceive things in a different way than you normally would? Or what exactly is the difference between psychedelic and psychotropic drugs? The main difference is that psychedelic substances cause an expansion of consciousness, often considered hallucinations, while psychotropic substances are simply those that cause an altered state of consciousness. These psychotropic substances are very common, highly prescribed, and include drugs ranging from ADHD medications and anti-anxiety medications and even sleep aids to Zambian. So all psychedelics are psychotropics, but not all psychotropics are psychedelics. Exactly. The semi-synthetic hallucinogen LSD was discovered by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman in 1943. Over the two decades that followed, LSD became one of the most researched psychoactive drugs due to its ability to produce a so-called model psychosis allowing for research on human mental disorders and associated mental activity. So what do you mean by a model psychosis? This is a term coined by those that were doing this early research on the drug, and it describes the fact that it causes the subject to enter into a mental state that is different from the normal mental state, which is significant because diseases like schizophrenia and Alzheimer's are examples of a permanent change in mental state, not simply a model psychosis. Psychiatrist Stan Groff, who was involved in these early research endeavors, provides a great explanation on the importance of LSD for medical research. It does not seem to be an exaggeration to say that psychedelics, used responsibly and with proper caution, would be for psychiatry. What the microscope is for biology and medicine, or the telescope is for astronomy. These tools make it possible to study important processes that under normal circumstances are not available for direct observation. So essentially, LSD is a tool for discovery in the sense that it provides a way for researchers to induce a short-term infection, for lack of a better word, of psychosis in a healthy patient, mimicking what occurs with schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, ultimately allowing us to study what these diseases look like in the brain in order to better treat them and also allows for much less inconsistent and difficult test subjects that are inherent with studies of psychosis-related diseases. As we just described, shortly after the discovery of LSD, the focus of research shifted towards the potential therapeutic uses of the hallucinogens in the treatment of a variety of psychiatric conditions, including anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, and even drug addiction, all in addition to those conditions already mentioned. But this is where things get more interesting. These studies showed marked changes in perception and consciousness under LSD, 
and led to studies by the U.S. government on the possible use of the drug as a mind control agent. In the 1950s, the CIA investigated LSD's potential use as a psychological weapon through the top-secret program MKUltra. These investigations involved administration of LSD to members of the public without their consent or knowledge. The hallucinogen was even tested on soldiers. After a few minutes, the men found it difficult to obey orders. An army of soldiers on hallucinogens? Yep. Luckily, the behavioral effects observed were the exact opposite of what would be desired in a mind control weapon. Instead, the drug revealed a mind opening effect. So, the government wanted LSD in order to help control people or potentially make them more open to suggestion, but instead, they got an army of soldiers who were likely to think more openly and be less susceptible to brainwashing methods. This mind opening observed is now referred to as ego dissolution and describes a feeling of oneness or unity with surroundings that users of the hallucinogen describe. Behavioral studies evaluating personal responses to the drug found that ego dissolution occurred due to the disruption of the boundaries of ego or self perceived by the user. Dr. Daniel Friedman, a renowned pharmacologist and pioneer of LSD research and discovery, described this behavioral effect of LSD. One basic dimension of behavior revealed in LSD states is portentousness, the capacity of the mind to see more than it can tell, to experience more than it can explicate, to believe in and be impressed with more than it can rationally justify, to experience boundlessness and boundaryless events from the banal to the profound. This term portentousness contrasts the term pretentiousness which insinuates that one is claiming to be able to do more than they actually can, whereas portentousness claims that you have the capacity to do more than you can. You actually do have that capacity. But this perceived mind-expansive nature of the drug appealed to the growing counterculture anti-establishment movement of the 1960s, and recreational and spiritual use skyrocketed. Yeah, I can imagine that these claims of mind-opening or mind-expansion were not taken very seriously because of the type of people that were making these claims, right? It seems that way, yes. General public opinion perceived these claims as just hippies being hippies and didn't pay it much mind. American psychologist Dr. Timothy Leary was one of these hippies and is considered to be one of the main leaders of this movement, notoriously advocating for the use of LSD to achieve a higher consciousness and transcendence. His was taken more seriously because of his scientific background, but ultimately he was viewed as a proponent of the counterculture movement, with his famous advice becoming a slogan for the hippie culture of the 1960s. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. This growing popularity outside medical research was met with widespread panic and vilification of the drug. There is a steady flow into San Francisco hospitals of young people who have freaked out and been picked up by the police in a state of desperate terror. Uh, there is nothing smart. There is nothing uh, uh, grown up or sophisticated in taking an LSD trip at all. They're just being complete fools. The complex interactions of LSD on the brain was not fully understood, which opened the door for wild claims and baseless assumptions to be made about the drug, such as its highly addictive nature, potential for overdose, and even claims of LSD causing permanent psychosis. I've definitely heard these claims firsthand. There seems to be a significant stigma surrounding LSD, at least in my opinion. I agree. I specifically remember my psychology teacher in high school saying that taking LSD was like taking ice cream scoops out of your brain. It sticks out in my memory because of how terrifying that seemed. And these current perceptions of ours are the long-term results of the fact that over the course of a year, LSD transformed from a promising new therapeutic drug 
with the potential to help us better understand human brain chemistry to one of the most dangerous illicit substances in America, prompting Nixon to wage his famous war on drugs. I want to say, however, that despite our budget problems, to the extent money can help in meeting the problem of dangerous drugs, it will be available. This is one area where we cannot have budget cuts because we must wage what I have called total war against public enemy number one in the United States, the problem of dangerous drugs. This war on drugs and political pressure led to the 1967 hallucinogenic drug regulations, which banned recreational use and restricted availability of LSD and other hallucinogens in drug-related psychotherapy studies, limiting the amount of research able to be performed on the drug. Why did they limit the availability of LSD for legitimate scientific studies? Because this limited the potential for the drug to be leaked, per se, into the general public for recreational use. In 1970, President Nixon went to the Narcotics Bureau today to sign a drug bill. The Controlled Substances Act made LSD a Schedule I drug, the class of dangerous substances with high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use. Congress passed the Controlled Substances Act, which classified LSD as a Schedule I drug, which, according to the Act, requires that the drug A have a high potential for abuse, B has no currently accepted medical use and treatment in the United States, and C is unsafe for use under medical supervision. This classification claimed LSD is more addictive, unsafe, and medically useless than Schedule II drugs such as cocaine, opioids like oxycodone, and even methamphetamine. All of these claims being either proven to be false or not yet identified, just merely assumed. This is crazy, I mean, really crazy, because as you mentioned earlier, during the two decades of intense research prior to LSD's criminalization, scientists had identified multiple significant therapeutic uses for LSD, right? Exactly, but that's not all. The 1,000 plus studies that were carried out during this time showed no apparent mechanism for LSD dependence, no physical withdrawal symptoms, and thus no physiological addiction potential. Research clinicians can assess the possibility of a drug to be potentially addictive by observing behavior of test subjects. This is usually determined based on the existence, and if so, the severity of observed behaviors. Some examples of this being excessive drug seeking, changes in daily behavior, decreased focus on personal wellness. These behaviors like the symptoms of withdrawal or dependence, such as headache, anxiety, insomnia, nausea, memory loss, sleep deprivation, to name a few. Withdrawal and dependence are required for a physiological addiction, and therefore the presence of these behaviors that occur even with short-term use of the drug, which is what is studied during these research trials, can be used to evaluate the potential for the drug to cause addiction. You can think of it as a spectrum ranging from extreme levels of withdrawal behavior, which is indicative of a high potential for addiction, to no observed withdrawal symptoms corresponding to little or no potential for addiction. Because none of the studies found any evidence of physical withdrawal or dependence, LSD doesn't have any potential to cause physiological addiction. You use the term physiological and physical multiple times. Is this an important distinction, or is there non-physiological addictions? Yeah, there are. When studying addiction potential, though, you're evaluating evidence of withdrawal, which occurs due to physical changes in the brain that result from drug use and cause observable physical symptoms. Withdrawal is a physiological response, and therefore only the potential for physical addiction can be deduced from these types of studies. There is, however, also psychological or emotional addiction, which is best described as occurring due to a mental desire rather than a physical need. For example, say I enjoy exercising and I have a strong desire or even compulsion to do it every single day. 
This is due to the fact that larger activities, like exercise, for example, can simulate the nucleus accumbens, a region in the brain known as the pleasure center, and this triggers a pleasurable response. Psychological addiction is one's desire to replicate that feeling of pleasure. LSD can cause psychological addiction if the user enjoys the effect of the drug and therefore wants to continue using it because of this desire, but not a physical need. In general, physical addiction is much more severe, dangerous, and harder to overcome. Although psychological addiction can have a negative impact on daily life, and in extreme cases can also be dangerous. So we can't rule out the possibility of individual cases of psychological addiction to LSD, but the main concern with drug use is the possibility of a physical addiction, which LSD lacks, right? Exactly. Another characteristic of LSD discovered through these studies was the drugs at unusually high potency. Dosing studies revealed significant behavioral effects of LSD occurring with very little doses of the drug. LSD was and still remains the most potent hallucinogen, with the average dose ranging from 50 to 100 micrograms. Small amounts causing a large effect demonstrates the high potency of a drug and leads to very low physiological toxicity. In other words, a highly potent drug like LSD requires a very small dose to cause the effect of the drug, and the smaller the amount of drug used, the lower the ability for it to affect the body in negative ways. Across the 1,000-plus research studies performed on LSD, there is no documented evidence of LSD causing human organ damage or neurophysiological deficits for both acute and chronic use of the drug, even when administered in amounts much, much larger than the effective dose. So LSD could still have toxic effects on the body, but to observe any legitimate toxicity would require a larger amount than is needed to cause the effects of the drug that people are seeking. Yes, like a very, very large amount of the drug. So I imagine this has significance with regards to illicit recreational use as well, where the drug is purchased and the user is not likely to waste the substance by taking more than needed to achieve feelings they're looking for, and therefore is very unlikely to take enough to cause death, unlike other illicit drugs such as heroin or MDMA or any of those others that are often linked with overdoses. Yeah, I'm not positive, but I imagine it would cost a lot of money to be able to purchase enough LSD to find toxicity, in my opinion. In fact, there are no documented deaths resulting from LSD toxicity, so no one's been able to purchase that much, apparently. All fatalities associated with LSD are a result of the intense psychotropic mind and perception-altering effects of the drug, not the actual drug chemical itself. Yet there are a few cases of fatalities resulting from the intense mind-altering effects. One example being a person who jumped out of a window, although I will say that civic incidents was later proved unrelated to LSD after the tox screen came up negative. You can think about this, though, like alcohol, where you can die from a car accident when you are drunk, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was the alcohol itself that killed you. But you also can die from alcohol if you drink too much of it. That's an example where you can die from both toxicity and the effects of the drug. Even today, the lethal dose of LSD in humans is still unknown. But this is purely because it is so high that it has never been, for lack of a better word, successfully reached. Although all of this data and information had been published by 1970, Congress classified LSD as a Schedule I drug under the Substance Abuse Act, completely disregarding existing documentation that showed LSD failed to meet any of the criteria for the scheduling. The drug was criminalized to the highest degree for what appears to be political reasons rather than public health concerns. The Schedule I classification was the final nail in the coffin for LSD clinical research, which came to an abrupt halt, remaining uninvestigated for 40 years. Over the past decade, interest in LSD and the drug's potential therapeutic uses have witnessed a slight increase. 
issue of drug addiction in general has grown significantly in the 40 years since LSD research stopped. Substance abuse has become the number one cause of preventable deaths in the United States and has an annual economic impact of over half a trillion dollars on the U.S. alone. The therapeutic use of LSD as a promising treatment for addiction, on top of the potential use of LSD and other hallucinogens as a tool to better understand and ultimately treat neurological disorders such as schizophrenia and Alzheimer's, has allowed for the reemergence of clinical research on LSD as an area of significance and promise, yet still only on a small scale. LSD is known to interact with the brain in multiple ways and with great complexity. The studies in the last decade have focused on the challenge of establishing a thorough understanding of how LSD interacts with and works in the brain so that therapeutic research can be carried out more efficiently. How important is this knowledge of how LSD works in the brain? If it is so challenging, then wouldn't it be more efficient to just carry out research using the model psychosis that LSD provides rather than spending time trying to understand how that psychosis actually occurs? Yes and no. While the ultimate goal of LSD research is therapeutic discovery, the complexity of LSD affects our ability to effectively use the model psychosis. Most of the interactions of LSD within the brain are not related to the psychotropic and psychedelic properties of the drug. And so in order to effectively use the model psychosis as a tool for understanding psychosis-related diseases, we need to at least pinpoint which interactions are involved in the hallucinogenic responses and thus the model psychosis. The current focus isn't on classifying every single interaction of LSD in the brain, but at least identifying which ones correspond to the unique hallucinogenic response. All right, well, before we go any further, let's have a quick crash course in neuroscience. The brain is made up of specialized linked cells called neurons that process information and transmit signals. Neurons can talk to each other and transmit information by sending and receiving chemical messengers known as neurotransmitters. One neuron can release a certain neurotransmitter which delivers the message by binding the receptors on a second neuron. The neurotransmitter binding the receptor causes a specific response in the second neuron. The type of response depends on the type and specific function of the neuron, neurotransmitter, and the receptor involved. Drugs can target and bind to specific receptors and induce various responses, resulting in the drug effects. Receptors are specific, however, and to effectively bind, the chemical must have the necessary structure. Think of the receptor as a lock and the chemical as a key. So studying the interactions of LSD is essentially studying what type of receptors the drug binds to and what kind of responses this causes. Okay, so with that information, we can move on to the fun part, finding out exactly how this drug works and what exactly it does in the brain, thanks to a recent breakthrough in neuroimaging studies. In 2011, the first major LSD research study in 40 years was published. The study examined the interactions of LSD in the brain using neuroimaging technology in an attempt to better understand LSD's mechanism of action and how it elicits its characteristic psychotropic effects. Four follow-up studies have been performed, including one just earlier this year. The neuroimaging approach was designed based on existing knowledge of how LSD interacts in the brain, which up until 2010 basically boiled down to a that LSD has structural similarities to the natural neurotransmitter serotonin, and therefore it likely interacts with the serotonin system in the serotonin receptors. B, whilst the LSD binds with many receptors, including multiple serotonin receptors, it has the highest attraction and binding ability with two specific serotonin receptors. These are called the 5-HT2A and the 5-HT1A receptors. C, 
there are two main classes of hallucinogenic drugs that interact with serotonin receptors. Indolamines such as LSD and phenethylamines such as psilocybin. These are structurally very different and therefore interact with different types of serotonin receptors. Side-by-side -side comparison, however, of the interactions of these two classes of hallucinogens against various receptors reveal only one receptor that both types of hallucinogens can bind to, the 5-HT2A receptor subtype. This suggests that 5-HT2A is responsible for the distinct subjective behavioral effects characteristic of hallucinogens in both classes. And finally, the link between 5-HT2A binding and LSD psychoactive and ego-dissociative effects is further confirmed based on the fact that LSD in particular binds this specific target the strongest out of any other hallucinogen and also causes the largest corresponding effect. All this information discovered in the 1960s led to the hypothesis that hallucinogens act through binding and activating the 5-HT2A receptor. This was confirmed in 2010 in a study where a 5-HT2A receptor deactivating drug was administered following by the hallucinogen psilocybin. The activation of the 5-HT2A receptor resulted in the loss of the hallucinogenic effects of psilocybin. So essentially, they turned off all of these receptors that we think cause hallucinogenic effects, then administered a hallucinogen and found that they got no hallucinogenic effects of the drug. Has this been tested with LSD in addition to psilocybin? Or is it, is it safe to assume that LSD would be affected by the deactivation of this receptor in the same way as psilocybin? These specific tests have only been done on psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms. Matt Johnson, who is a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University, actually gives a great explanation for the use of psilocybin rather than LSD. It comes down to the spelling of psilocybin. It's a hard word to spell, but at least it's not spelled L-S-D, which is a very strong word that people react to. So while psilocybin and LSD are very different structurally, they both act on the 5-HT2A receptor, and therefore the assumption that LSD would also have a loss of hallucinogenic effect after administration of a drug that turns off this receptor is safe to make. Like Matt Johnson said, these specific tests have only been done on psilocybin rather than LSD because psilocybin has a lot less name recognition and historical vilification than LSD and is therefore much easier to obtain for research purposes. Okay, so now we know which receptor is responsible for the sensory and cognitive distortions of LSD, but do we know yet exactly how this receptor causes these effects? Until earlier this year, no, we didn't. And we still don't have all of the information, but we have recently identified some key aspects of LSD's effects. In a study published in April of 2016, Tagliazucci et al. studied the changes in brain activity occurring with LSD administration in humans using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. fMRI maps brain activity by detecting changes in blood flow throughout the brain, which corresponds to a change in brain activity. Activated neurons, or neurons that are transmitting signals, require more oxygen than non-activated neurons and therefore the flow of oxygenated blood increases to areas with activated neurons. fMRI uses blood oxygen level dependent contrasts, which can detect and map blood oxygen levels across the brain to provide an image representing brain activity and connectivity. Basically, oxygenated blood looks different in this MRI than deoxygenated blood, and by taking a picture of the brain's blood oxygen levels, we get an image of which parts of the brain are active, represented by the areas with high levels of oxygenated blood, and which parts are not active. Basically, that's the idea. 
The overall goal of this study was to look at changes in global and local connectivity in the brain under LSD and compare these physiological aspects to the subjective effects of LSD, specifically the ego dissolution phenomenon. And then, and as Aaron mentioned earlier, ego dissolution refers to the commonly cited experience of unity with one's surroundings and a heightened understanding occurring with LSD use. Yes, it sounds very non-scientific, I know. So described in the most scientific way as I can, ego dissolution is the perceived disruption of ego boundaries, which results in a blurring of the distinction between self-representation and object representation, allowing for a blending of the self-representations into a coherent whole. So no big deal, just the disappearance of understanding of the self and unification of your being with all the things in your presence. The fMRI scans of 15 subjects after IV injections of LSD revealed a marked increase in global connectivity compared with IV injections of the placebo, meaning communication between non-neighboring brain regions increased with LSD. The scans under LSD also showed activation of connections between different regions of the brain that lack connectivity in the placebo scans and don't normally interact at all in the brain. The increases in global connectivity were greatest in areas of the brain with the highest density of 5-HT2A receptors. Uh, reaffirming the implication of this receptor once again. While global connectivity increased with injections of LSD, a decrease in activity within the default mode network was also observed. The DMN is a major highly connected brain network between the prefrontal cortex, medial parietal cortex, and the medial temporal lobes. This network works in opposition to other brain networks that process external sensory input from the immediate surroundings and environment. What, what do you mean it works in opposition to the other sensory input network? Well, one of the functions of the DMN is sensory input. And while the function of most brain networks involved in sensory input take in sensory stimuli and then transmit this information to the rest of the brain, the DMN, however, works to limit the intake of sensory stimuli. And, and why does it have to do that? Essentially, the DMN is a cognitive control center that acts as a high-level filter of external stimuli rather than just a block. It evaluates incoming external stimuli and signals and then eliminates or blocks those deemed excessive or not essential. We're still waiting on the why, though. Don't we as humans want all the information our brains can get? According to the brain, no, we don't. The DMN allows for control and order over external stimuli, which ultimately allows us to better focus on tasks essential to human existence and survival. I like to imagine this as a child sitting in a room with hundreds of speakers, loudly playing various music, recording sounds, etc. The child's mother enters and tells the child that it's time for dinner and to come eat. The child is being bombarded by hundreds of audio inputs and is unable to hear the mom or even focus on what just one of the speakers is playing. So the child misses dinner. If instead most of those speakers that ultimately just caused excess noise were turned off, the child would be able to hear the mother and would come to dinner. The brain can't handle all the stimuli that is exposed to it on a day-to-day -day basis, and the DMN helps remove what isn't immediately important for survival. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the overall goal of the studies was not only to map the connectivity of the brain on LSD, but also to compare this to the subjective effects of the drug. This was done by giving the subjects a questionnaire called the Altered State Consciousness Questionnaire, which assesses the degree of ego dissolution in mind expansive perception experienced with the LSD injections. This questionnaire lists statements including, I feel connected to a higher power. Everything seems to unify into oneness. Sounds seem to influence what I see. I feel like I no longer have a body. I feel incapable of making a decision. Everyday things acquire special meaning. Things in my environment have a new strange meaning. And so on. Below each statement is a line, and the subject is asked to mark on the line their opinion of this statement. 
the left side of the line being not more than usually, and the right side of the line being, yes, much more than usual. ACS scores showed an increase in experience of these subjective drug effects directly correlating to an increase in global connectivity, combined with a decrease in DMN connectivity. So they found that the increasing amounts of brain signaling overall and the decreasing signaling in the DMN filter corresponded to increasing effects of the drug. Exactly. Our brains have adapted to limit the amount of stimuli received by our surroundings in order for us to be able to handle and order all the incoming stimuli. It is believed that earlier Homo sapiens actually had the ability to access more of their brain capacity because this mechanism of suppression by the DMN was not fully developed, and this prevented them from being effectively civilized. Over time, however, we evolved this DMN, and now we can be civilized. These studies provided the first scientific evidence that LSD has actual mind-expansive capabilities and allows our brain to use more of its potential capacity, demonstrating that by selectively increasing the global connectivity and activation in the brain while simultaneously disrupting the organization of existing networks of connection, aka the DMN, that limits external stimuli, LSD has the ability to dissolve the perceived boundaries between the self and the environment while opening the mind up to the previously blocked and unknown stimuli of our world. These claims that have been ignored as the rambling of drug-induced hippies are actually scientifically sound. Not just scientifically sound, but actually observable through empirical evidence, which is a huge deal for anybody who knows about science. While LSD remains a Schedule One illicit drug, it affects are slowly becoming more understood and evidence opposing the ground for its vilification is surfacing. Even if LSD is decriminalized, do we want our brains to access that which we have spent thousands of years trying to block? Is knowledge actually power, or is some knowledge best kept hidden? That is a question for you to answer for yourself. And while you're still aware of it. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville. This episode was researched, scripted, and hosted by Erin Young as part of a 400-level neuropharmacology class project during fall 2016. Additional sound engineering by me, Angel Core. The scientific content was fact-checked by Chris Sabatini and Caitlin LeHue. Jessica Fox wrote our theme music. Special thanks to Aaron's co-host, Matt, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including links to the research discussed in this episode, at clubcore.com slash podcast slash episode five. If you'd like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time.